0: So, um, most of you probably don't know this, but the American Psychological Association, um, which is kind of the governing body over all psychological things in the United States, uh, they actually do a yearly study, a very in-depth, very comprehensive study on stress levels in America. The study's called... uh, just that, stress in America, and like I said, annually they look at what are the different causes and sources of stress for Americans, how severe those stress levels are, how things change, what are the effects of that stress in people's lives, and um, I bring this up because actually just this past Wednesday was when they released this year's study results, or at least part of them. They kind of re- release them in stages, but uh, I was looking at it on, on Wednesday, and it was, it was pretty fascinating to look at the results. I, I had heard of it before, but I hadn't really looked into the study too much and paid much attention to the results, and one of the things that stood out to me as I went back and looked at multiple years of it was that this year is kind of an exception to the rule. Uh, This year is the first year that stress levels have risen in the United States overall. Um, Since the study started in 2007, so it's been going on for a decade, they've always gone down until this year. Um, But then also, the number one most prevalent source of stress was different than normal Uh, this year. um, And this probably won't surprise many of you, but the number one stress factor, most prevalent one, so maybe not necessarily the one that caused the most severe stress for people, but the one that caused the most amount of stress for the most amount of people, uh, was the future of the nation um, because of our political circumstances right now. And and so that was, um, in fact, in the past, it hadn't even been in the top five, um, but it was number one for this year. But um, what stood out to me, and the reason I bring all this up, is because of what is usually the number one uh, source of stress in America. Um, and that is money, actually. Um, every single year besides this year, um, the number one thing that has caused stress in Americans is money. Um, when when um, they ask people in the study what like when they're doing their research and they're asking their survey questions, roughly 62% of Americans say that um, they are significantly concerned about um, their their financial situation. Their financial situation, their, their money circumstances either causes severe or at the very least significant levels of stress for them on a regular basis. Um, and so, I, I'm guessing that that result doesn't surprise many of us. Um, I mean, we probably are those who are stressing about money. Um, that is a reality for many, many Americans. Um, and again, think about that. Like, money beats out stress levels due to family responsibilities, due to work, due to um, health concerns and violence. All of those things cause lower levels of stress in Americans than money does. Um, and I think it's interesting because I think our tendency, when we think about that, we'll, we'll think, okay, yeah, that's, that's not surprising, but that's probably more of a uniquely modern Western sort of stressor because we're such a materialistic, such a money-focused society. Um, but but that's not actually the case if you think about it. Like, Think about scripture. Think about what it has to say about money. Um, Jesus warned against idolizing money numerous times um, during, his, during his short ministry on earth. Paul repeatedly encourages the church to hope in heavenly rather than earthly or financial treasures. Um, and as we're going to see in James, James addresses this subject as well. We've, we're going to be looking at James 1, verses 9 through 11 today. And it's interesting if you think of the flow of our passage of, like, James so far. So this is going to be our third sermon um, in this um, in this letter. And what we see is this interesting progression where when Caleb uh, preached the first sermon, we looked at James is calling them to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so he's acknowledging trials in general. He's considering you are going to face many trials in this life. Um, and then the next the next passage, what we looked at last week, um, again what Caleb preached on, was seeking wisdom and asking the Lord for wisdom. And we should recognize that that's also in the context of the trials that we face. And so the reason I bring this up is to say it's easy to look at James as a letter and to think that he's bringing up a whole bunch of seemingly random or disconnected thoughts that he's just kind of jumping one from one thing to the next and they don't seem to flow or connect very much but i would argue that there is a flow and there's a connection and we actually see that in this passage as well so he start he starts off by recognizing you are going to have trials count it all joy though brothers and sisters when you face them and as you are doing so seek wisdom from the lord because you'll need it as you face those trials And then he comes to our passage today, which, interestingly enough, is dealing with the subject of money, of wealth, and poverty, and socioeconomic status. And so, I don't think that's a coincidence. James is bringing this up because he knows that this was a major source of trial and hardship for the early church. He knew that this was difficult for them, much like it is for us um, just like it's a major stress factor in Americans, it was a major stress factor for them. And so we want to be recognizing that James is dealing with our very circumstances as we look at the passage today, even though this was 2,000 years ago. Um, and so um, we're going to be looking, as I said, at James 1, verses 9 through 11. If you haven't already turned there, in the, in the pew Bibles, in the black ones, it's on page 1011. 1011. And then in the White Bibles, it's on page 654, if you want to turn there. But um, as I'm going to be reading this passage, as you're looking at it and following along with me, um, pay attention to what Paul, or not what Paul, what James is saying about this subject um, and dealing with this idea of poverty and idolatry of wealth and how he addresses it. So, um, as I said, follow along with me as I... Uh, Look at James 1, verses 9 through 11. He says this, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation "'and the rich in his humiliation, "'because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. "'For the sun rises with its scorching heat "'and withers the grass. "'Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. "'So also will the rich man fade away "'in the midst of his pursuits.'" So, what do we have here? As I said before, James is addressing a major problem that he knew was present in the churches that he was writing to at the time. Um, the churches were full at that point in time primarily with poorer individuals. A lot of the early converts to the Christian church were people in the lower classes, and so many of the people in the church did not have very much um, but then also, we know that the region, this region of the world at this period of time, even though we don't know exactly when, the, when this letter was written, we know during this period of time there was a famine going on. Um, we know from 1 Corinthians 16, for instance, that Paul took up a collection from the churches in Asia to provide relief and aid to the churches in Judea. Um, and so we know that these communities, these churches were struggling not only because they were already composed of the poorer individuals in those areas, but they were already str- like s- struggling because of famine. their circumstances were very difficult. Um, but even in light of that, there were some wealthy upper class individuals in the churches as well, um, and it sounds like there, they weren't there wasn't. Things weren't good between those two groups. There was conflict going on. Uh, We know from later sections in James, as we'll get to in chapter two later on, um, that some people were showing partiality towards the rich. The wealthy were being treated as superior to um, those who didn't have as much. So we have this situation where most of the church is already super stressed out because they're barely getting by. Then, on top of that, the rich in the church are being treated as better than those who don't have as much money. So, I mean, just imagine that if that was true in our context. Think about the different struggles and thoughts and feelings that people would be dealing with. You'd have the poorer group who are discouraged and maybe even angry. Um, And then on the other hand, you see the rich who also might be angry in return or might be even experiencing feelings of pride or arrogance. Um, So, All of that together is a messy situation. It is hard, there's difficulty, there's conflict, people are struggling. And so you have this discouragement and anger and maybe even envy and pride, all of it being experienced in people and all because of their financial situations. And that is where these words from James come in. He wrote to help. He wrote to bring unity and encouragement and right thinking to both the poor and the rich in the church, um, even in their different circumstances. Um, He's trying to reorient the church's thinking and mindset on these matters. Um, And he wanted to show um, the different way to respond to these circumstances based upon their different circumstances, whether they have a lot of money or whether they don't. Um, And we'll, we'll see more about what that means later. But Notice that he isn't calling one group to become like the other. I think that's an interesting point to, to notice, is that he's not saying that the rich need to become like the poor or that the poor need to work harder to become rich. And he isn't even saying that they all need to just make sure that they're just, like, in the middle, like, nice, simple, middle-class individuals. Like, that's the ideal. That's not what, that's not what James is saying here. His solution is not in achieving a specific socioeconomic status his solution is a mindset and it's in having that that we can view our earthly circumstances differently than we're viewing them and so that's what he's trying to communicate to them and that's what i hope to communicate with you guys this morning i want to help you see that what james's mindset is that he's communicating here in verses 9 through 11 my prayer is that we would see the reality the way that he does that he would see our earthly and eternal circumstances the way that he does um, and then in light of that mindset, I want to show you how we should each respond in light of that, whether we have a lot in earthly possessions or whether we don't. And so, notice that James addresses both the poor and rich differently in this passage. We're going to look at this a lot more in depth later, but in verses 9 and 10, he specifically addresses the lowly brother, um, the one in a low Position socioeconomically, but then he also addresses the rich immediately after. He's calling them to boast in different things, and so we're going to consider why he does that. Um, so, after we establish James's worldview, in my first point, we'll spend the second and third points considering what he's calling each of those two groups to and why. Um, and as you'll see, he's calling them to approach the same worldview from kind of different angles, and so it's actually really cool how he does it, um, and we'll see more of that later. But with all that said, I ultimately want you to see this, that our only hope and boast, no matter matter our earthly circumstances, whether good or bad, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me say that again, because this is what I really want you to ultimately take out of this sermon, is that our only hope and boast, no matter our earthly circumstances, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if that's... That's the main idea. How does James get to that conclusion? That's where we want to start in our first point. So we'll consider his worldview and what he wants us to remember about earthly things, like I was saying before. Um, so that's, that's what I want us to focus on. And to do that, first, we're actually going to start at the end of the passage. Uh, James does this a lot where he gives his instructions, which we see in verses 9 and 10, um, and then he follows that with more of an explanation for why he gives those instructions. Uh, We've already seen James do this in the previous passages, and he'll continue to do it. And so it's actually helpful to start with at the end, look at his explanation, and then come back to his instructions later. And so that's what we're going to do. He tells the lowly or poor brother to boast in something, and then he tells the rich brother to boast in something. But again, we don't know why, and that comes in in verse 11. He provides his explanation there. Um, And he's actually doing so in a metaphorical uh, manner. And so um, we want to look at that now. So look with me again at verse 11. James says this, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So as I already said, James is using a metaphor here. And he makes it clear that we are the grass, and our earthly lives or experiences, in a sense, are our flowers. We are this grass and this flower that is that is growing and then it is being scorched by the sun and its heat. And so what's happening is that we're seeing that um, we will pass away or fade away in the midst of our pursuits. In other words, we're going to die. This is what James is basically saying in this metaphor, that we will live, we will grow, we we will begin pursuits in our life, we will go on living and pursuing different things, but we will die. Um, The scorching sun with its heat um, is his metaphor for death, and he's saying it will come for all of us inevitably. Inevitably. So why is James saying this? He wants us, he's saying it because he wants us to remember that all earthly things will pass away. They're temporary, even our very own lives. We we are eternal beings in the sense that our souls will go on forever. But our bodies, our fleshly bodies in this life will die. They will pass away. And that matters because Eventually, we need to recognize that the same is true for everything that we have in this life. All of our earthly possessions, all of our wealth, all of our money, all of our, the status, our social status that we have, all of it will cease to exist and disappear one day. And it'll happen in an instant. Um, All of those things will fall and perish along with us, just as verse 11 says. Um, and like I said, it happens in an instant. James uses this language of fading away. And if you're like me, you think in terms of, okay, if something's fading away, that means it's like a slow transition into disappearing. Because um, that's usually how we use that phrase um, in language today. But that actually isn't what James means, though. Think about it. His metaphor is referring to the grass and flowers in a desert, desert arid land. He's talking about plants that grow in Jerusalem, not in Illinois. These are, these are plants where they might grow, the, the roots of it might be hardy, but when the flower blossoms, it can be withered and destroyed within a day because of the scorching heat if it doesn't have any shade. James isn't referring to a slow fade. He's talking about fading away that is fast, that's abrupt, that's oftentimes unexpected. That's our reality in this world. We never know how long we have to live. And in the instant when our lives end, all of our earthly possessions will amount to nothing for us. Is that a scary thing to think about? Is that something that you try to avoid thinking about? If that's true for you, I want you to I encourage you to actually give that more thought. So often today, we want, we're afraid of death. We're afraid of even thinking about it and dealing with the fact that it is an inevitability for all of us unless Jesus comes back. But there is a reason that James brings this up. He's not just trying to be morbid. He's not just trying to just kind of shock us with some intense analogy. He wants us to remember our how, how easily, how fickle our lives are, how easy they are to, to just end. He wants us to remember that because it shapes the way that we treat and view the things in our lives. If you want to have a right relationship with your earthly possessions, you have to have this mindset that James is reminding us of. You have to rec- recognize that both your life and your things are temporary on this earth. Redeemer, Redeemer, I know you want to be people that think rightly about your money and finances. You want to honor God and not sin because of them. Um, I see that. I I know so many people who I've had conversations with in this church who want to think well about their money and how to steward it well. The problem is, though, that for many of us, we think the answer to those questions and to our problem of wanting to honor God and not knowing how We think that the answer and the solution is a circumstantial one. And what I mean by that is that we want to know what the ideal income is. We want to know how much debt is appropriate. Uh, We want to create the perfect budget and have just the right amount of savings. We want to know if the car that we're planning on buying is an indulgence or whether we have too much clothes. We, we want to think in terms of concrete numbers and set lines and limits for those things. And we think that as long as we don't cross those lines, as long as we stay within these, these number boundaries that we set for our lives, then we're not going to struggle with sin or with hardship. And we'll be, we'll be able to honor God perfectly with, with our view of finances and money. But friends, that isn't the solution there's no right amount of money or possessions to have. Buying a certain house, or even whether or not to buy a house, could be wise for one person and foolish for someone else. Um, and there is no ideal socioeconomic status as well. I mean, think about just some characters in Scripture. Think about people that we see talked about in the Bible. There are many, godly, many of the godliest people in Scripture had vast wealth. Consider Abraham, or Job, or David. But, on the other hand, we also see some of the godliest individuals in Scripture being pretty much just destitute and having nothing. Think about John the Baptist and many of the other prophets. No, we can't, we can't keep thinking that the way to battle greed or our lust for money um, is to make sure that our finances look a certain way. It's good to think about those things, but that's not ultimately the answer. It's not what's going to help us truly honor and glorify God with what we have. We have a sinful nature, and that means that we will find reason to sin no matter what our circumstances are, whether we have a lot of money or whether we have none. We need new hearts. We don't need new bank account balances. That's where James's worldview is so helpful for us. We must remember what he's telling us. Ultimately, we will die, and our earthly things will be meaningless for us one day. We will all stand before our creator and judge, and on that day, our earthly merits and status will be worthless. Don't ignore that reality. Facing that truth is the first step towards being able to approach money properly. If you're only focused on this life now, money's going to seem like a much bigger deal than it is. But recognizing how temporary earthly things are helps us to put them right in the rightful places in our hearts and minds. Um, I was trying to think of a good analogy um, as I was preparing this sermon about what I'm trying to communicate here. And it actually struck me this morning where um, many of you have probably seen this, U- it's, a, it's a YouTube vis- video about um, it's like, it's this comical look at kind of the hipster culture and they're um, dealing with artesian wood, like these finely crafted, hand-carved firewood. And in the video, you see the, this guy who he's spending just hours upon hours meticulously like shaping and woodworking this log that's just going to be burned up In less than an hour. And he's like he's sanding it down. He's he's just like doing all of this stuff to make it look perfect. He has scissors and he's cutting off like little like twigs that are hanging off of it and stuff. It's just and it's it's the whole video is meant to be comical. It's meant to be a joke. And the point of it is, it's ridiculous that he's spending all of this time devoting to this thing that's just gonna disappear in no time at all. And that's the point that, that James is really trying to communicate to us in this passage. It's recognizing if your earthly things are not going to last, why, why should they consume you? Why should they be what you utterly devote yourself to during this life? So that's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, think about the greater scheme of things. Think about the full context and perspective of your life. Don't devote yourself utterly to something that will not last. That doesn't mean that money and finances are totally worthless and we shouldn't consider them at all because God calls us to be good stewards of those things. But we want to put them in a rightful place in our hearts and keeping this perspective that James is communicating allows us to do that well. Our hearts should be given to that which will last beyond death. That is what James wants us to be thinking about. Money is not evil, but it is a worthless and terrible God for us to commit ourselves to. Think about it. Money is simply a resource that can be used in this life for good or evil. But so many people put their security and put their hope in it when it will not last. If money if our possessions, if our status on earth will not avail us in the life to come, what will? That's ultimately what we should be coming, that's the question that we should be considering in light of what James is saying here. If those things aren't going to stick with us, if those things aren't going to help us in the life to come, if that's not going to stay with us, what will? Will anything do so? and if it will then that's what we want to devote ourselves to that's what we want to concern ourselves with far more than money and our possessions and what we have and so that's what James is wants us to turn around and pay attention to is this idea of what will last and at this point to answer that question it's helpful for us to know more about James's metaphor because he is using this metaphor but And you might have already have recognized this, but he's actually pulling this metaphor from another passage of scripture. Um, He's actually taking this right out of Isaiah 40. Um, It's verses 6 through 8. And he knew his audience, who were mostly Jewish Christians, because of their Jewish heritage, they would understand the reference that he was making. They would know where he was taking this metaphor from. And so they would get it instantly. For us, it might not be as obvious because we don't have as as thorough of an understanding of Old Testament scripture as they would have, but they would have known immediately what he was pulling from, what he was referencing, what he was quoting. And so they would have a deeper understanding even of the meaning of the passage that we might not even have. And so we need to look for that. We need to understand what is that deeper meaning that they would have gotten that maybe we're missing right now. And we're actually not going to look back at Isaiah 40. We're actually going to look at 1 Peter 1, because Peter also, in his first letter, references this metaphor and uses it as well. And he goes into more explanation than James does on what the meaning and fuller context of this metaphor is. Um, And so, if you would, turn, it's just going to be a couple pages um, after James, but turn to 1 Peter 1. Um, I want us to look at verses 20 through, 22 through 25, and we'll see um, what, what this greater picture of this metaphor even is beyond just the fact that our earthly things and our lives will pass away. So 1 Peter 1 um, verses 22 through, through 25. He said, Peter says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And here's where he quotes it. Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory... Excuse me, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, do you see what's going on here in this passage? Do you see how it provides further explanation for us than even James provides? First, Peter's calling the Christians to do something in verse 22. Um, then what does he say? He gives them the source of their ability to do that. Um, And we see that in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Um, And so he's providing the explanation. Why are you able to do this thing? It's because you have been born again. You've been made different. So they've been changed in this profound way. And how do we know that's true? What is his, in a sense, proof of that fact? And this is where he uses Isaiah 40 to answer that question. And do you see how he's providing that explanation? He's saying that our flesh is this perishable seed that's passing away, um, which we already knew. We knew that we were withering. We already saw that in James. We know that our bodies will die and our earthly glory um, will fall. But then he goes on. The passage doesn't just end there. Peter keeps in what James left out because he knew the readers would know it. Um, So James doesn't finish what Peter does, even though James's readers would have known what he was referencing. So Peter goes on. He keeps in what James left out from Isaiah 40 because he finishes it by saying, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So our lives, this this perishable body that we live in, that is, that is part of who we are, that will fade away, that will pass away. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So that's the imperishable seed that he mentioned earlier, why we, which is his proof that we are born again and why we're able to do this thing that he says in verse 22. Um, but again, this idea is that though our bodies fade, the word of God remains forever. Um, And that's what we have been born again through. And then what does Peter say at the very, very end? He provides one line of commentary to even just further explain explain that. He says, And this word, which is the word of the Lord that remains forever, is the good news that was preached to you. So do you see how all of this fits together? Peter is teaching us that our earthly bodies and things are perishable. They will not last. But as Christians, as those who have heard the good news and have responded to it in repentance and faith, we have been born again to something that will not die. We have been born again of the imperishable word of God. But that word isn't just, he's not just referring to biblical teachings. He's talking about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Peter is telling us is that we have been born again of the living word of the word manifest in the flesh who the good news is about we have been born again through Jesus Christ he is the imperishable seed that does last who we are united with and who therefore we will we will stand forever alongside so getting back to my question if our earthly things will not help us or save us when we die what will Is there anything? The answer is Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is ultimately saying here. And that's what James wants us to recognize when he's referencing this passage. That is why we shouldn't hope in our money or our wealth or our possessions. In the eternity to come, they will do nothing for us. But Jesus will if we have faith in him. That is what James is wanting us to focus on. By faith, he is our hope. He is our security. He is our God and our salvation. When we stand in judgment, when our money and things are long gone and can't help us at all, Jesus Christ will be the one who pleads on our behalf. When all we can say for ourselves is that we're sinners and our earthly success will be pointless for us, Jesus Christ will be the one who says that he has died for our sins. And the Father will count that. When we cannot call ourselves as righteous, Jesus Christ will be the one that says that his perfect righteousness is ours by faith. Jesus is our Lord and Redeemer if we have turned to him in faith. We have been born again of him. And that is why James is using this specific metaphor. His original audience would have immediately have known this reference and they would have known that he w- what he was getting at. He was telling them and us, when we focus on money, think larger, think eternally. Don't just think about this short, momentary life. Think of eternity. Think of what will matter 10,000 years from now. Your money and your wealth will be long gone at that point, but your relationship with Christ will last forever. So focus on him. Don't devote your life to acquiring something that will instantly disappear. Devote your life to Christ, who will be with you forever. That is the picture and worldview that James is sharing with us here. He isn't calling the poor to get richer or the rich to get poorer. He's calling them to, in whatever circumstances they find themselves in, whether with little or with plenty, to ultimately recognize that all of it doesn't matter, that eternally Christ does. And so we want to place him at the forefront of our hearts and our minds and our devotion and efforts in this world. So as money, as we're prone to put money at the forefront, he replaces that in our hearts because of this eternal perspective that James is giving us. If you are discouraged, if you are in sin, then look to Jesus and not your earthly treasures. We're thinking that just changing them will fix the problem. And that brings us to my final two points. Um, And don't worry, these ones will go quicker. Um, But so far, we have only looked at verse 11. So we need to come back around to verses 9 and 10 um, in this passage to see, given this worldview that James has given us, how we can understand what he is specifically calling both the poor and the rich brothers and sisters to do. And we'll look at them separately because, as I mentioned in the beginning, they're quite different things that he's calling them to. Um, But we'll see that they're basically two different angles that are approaching the same thing. Um, But first, I want us to start with looking at the lowly brother. And so look with me again at verse 9 in James 1. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does that mean? It doesn't make much sense unless you get what we've already established. James wants the lowly brother, the one who has little, to focus not on his earthly circumstances, but on his heavenly ones. Do you see yourself as falling into this category? Do you see yourself as the lowly brother? Do you live paycheck to paycheck? do you struggle at times or even often to make ends meet? If you are, don't put your hope in changing that. The answer for you isn't that changing. Don't just simply long for more money. Don't envy or get angry when peop- at people who have it. Sure, We can pursue greater financial well-being and stability if it's feasible, but don't put your hope in that. There's a big difference between those two things. Don't enslave yourself to it. Your contentment is not dependent upon it, and neither is your joy. You don't need money or those things. You need to remember what you have in Jesus Christ. That's what James is saying. To boast in your exaltation is to marvel in what you have been given in Jesus Christ you might not have much from an earthly standpoint um, some people could look at your life and say that you you haven't done much with it simply because you don't have a lot of things trust me if that's you I can relate to that I know that feeling I know getting that feedback from people in your life there are people in my life who think I'm wasting it because I I'm not making a lot of money. They know that I have like, did well in school, and they look at what I'm doing now, and they're thinking to themselves, like, why isn't Kyle being, why isn't Kyle like a lawyer or a doctor or just something else prestigious that makes you a lot of money? Um, they're disappointed in my life decisions. Like, I've had family members approach me about this very thing. They're disappointed and think I'm wasting my life in a lot of ways, In their eyes, in eyes that only see this earthly life, I am failing. And you might be too in the eyes of those around you. But friends, they couldn't be more wrong. Don't be fooled by their thinking. Think about it this way. You wouldn't listen to a blind man who's attempting to critique the sunset or explain it to you. He's not going to be able to articulate that to you accurately. So why would you believe those worldly voices when they can't see anything beyond this life? If they can only see this earthly existence, why would you trust their assessment of whether your life is eternally successful or right or good? It doesn't make any sense to trust them in that. Think about what scripture promises to those who are trusting in Christ. That's what we want to listen to not worldly voices around us. We want to listen to the promises and word of God. So much could be said about that. So much could be said about what God promises to his children and what the riches are that we have in Christ. Um, but And so I'm not going to obviously be able to explain all of that, but I did want to take a little bit of time to highlight just some of the things that are mentioned in Scripture about that. And so I was thinking, like, what's what would be a good way of looking at that? And so I actually decided to look at, um, in the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the churches that we see in chapters two and three in Revelation. And I wanted to look at, okay, what are just some some things that are promised to God's people just in those two chapters of Scripture? Um, And the list is amazing. So in the first letter, we will be granted to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. That's in Revelation two seven. Um, in the next letter, we will be given the crown of life and not be hurt by the second death. That's in um, two verses ten and eleven. In the third letter, we will be given the hidden manna and a personalized white stone with a new name written on it that only we and the Lord will know. That's in two eleven. Or two seventeen in the fourth letter, we will be given authority over the nations and the morning star. That's chapter two, verses twenty six and twenty eight. In the fifth letter, Christ will clothe us with white garments, He will confess us before the Father and angels, and he will never blot our names out of the book of life. That's in three chapter three, verses four and five. in the third in the sixth letter. We will be made pillars in the temple of God, and God's name will be written upon us. That's in chapter 3, verse 12. And in the seventh letter, we will be granted to sit with Christ on his throne. That's in chapter 3, verse 21. These are just a couple of the promises that are made to God's people in Scripture. Just stop and consider all of those things for just a moment And like I said, Scripture promises so many other things beyond just these ones. When Paul said that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he meant it. We are, in our union with Christ, richer than we could ever possibly imagine. It will take an eternity thinking about this and reflecting on this and never actually coming to an end of realizing how rich we are in Christ. It will take eternity to understand that more and more. Yes, not in an earthly sense, perhaps, we don't have riches, we don't have wealth, but in a spiritual and heavenly sense, we have more than we could ever hope for or imagine. Guys, that is so much more important than what we have just in this temporary earthly existence. If you are the lowly brother, if you don't have much in this life, that is what James wants you to focus on. He wants you to boast in these heavenly things. Meditate on them. Marvel in them. Your exaltation is all of these things that you have been given in Jesus Christ. So boast in them, not in what you have in an earthly sense. Dwell on that And you will see your heart change towards your earthly status. You will worry less about accumulating wealth. You'll feel more peace and joy and contentment even in the midst of poverty. Work and money will no longer be idols for you. You won't feel pressured to overwork yourself when your time should be better spent with family or friends or the church. You won't feel like you need to just jump from job to job just to make more money. You, won't be eager to, you, you will be eager to give even if you don't have a lot to begin with. Your priorities will align with God's in ways that they didn't before. Can you imagine living that way? For many of you, it might seem impossible that that could be your existence, that even though you might not have much, you can still feel joy and peace and contentment and you can be generous, and hospitable, and all of those types of things. It might seem crazy to think that you don't have to stress about money, but that truly is possible if you focus your mind and your heart on what Christ has given you and offered you rather than what you lack on this earth. So lowly brother or sister, boast in your exaltation. Set your mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch it transform your life. Now, as for the rich brothers and sisters here, James has a different encouragement for you or for us. So we'll we'll look at that now. So look with me at verse 10. So we already saw in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but then verse 10 says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So, I mean, isn't that interesting? James first told the lowly brother to boast in his exaltation, but now he's telling the rich brother to boast in what? It's in his humiliation. It's a totally opposite message. He's telling them to boast in completely contrary things, it seems like. So it's important for us to reflect on what is James getting at here? And just kind of as a quick tangent, I want to acknowledge the fact that I love this that he is doing this, because we get to see here this beautiful beautiful picture of how the gospel applies to different circumstances. It's easy, and it was, it's pretty impactful for me to reflect on this myself, it's easy to treat the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, like it's just this straightforward, one-dimensional story that doesn't really have any layers or nuance to it. But that isn't true at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a multifaceted multifaceted diamond. That's how I want to think about it. And James is wisely and pastorally focusing in on one of its facets for the lowly brother, but then also he is wisely and pastorally focusing on a different facet for the rich brother. Think about it, the poor and rich are going to be tempted with subtly different types of sin or struggles and discouragement in their different circumstances. And James is taking that into account. He's focusing in on one aspect of the gospel that's going to deeply connect with those who have little in this life um, and something that they need to hear. But then he's going to focus on the flip side, on another aspect of the gospel to provide the same sort of support and help to the rich. And it's just cool to think about, like, the gospel... We can just share one comprehensive gospel that's gonna address everyone. But he's saying here, there's different aspects of the gospel that we can address and promote in each other's lives and remind each other of to address our different circumstances. Like even from a biblical counseling standpoint, it's just really cool to, to notice that. It's an incredible thing that the gospel, though unchanging, is applicable in totally different ways to help those believers who are walking with Christ. But like I said, that's a tangent. I want to get back to my question of what is James getting at in verse 10? What does it mean to boast in our humiliation? We begin to see what he means by looking at and considering the second half of that verse. So he says, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So in part, James wants the rich brothers and sisters to recognize that their earthly treasures will not last as we've already talked about, we've already been addressing that, they might have those things now, but they will disappear in the blink of an eye. So are you doing well financially? Are you in a comfortable and safe financial situation right now? Would you even consider yourself relatively wealthy or rich? If that's the case, praise God that he has provided you that blessing. But don't depend on that. Don't rely on what you have and neglect to rely on Christ. What benefit will you have on the day of judgment if you spend your life resting in your earthly things and not in your relationship with Christ? But even more than that, boasting in our humiliation means recognizing that we are all on equal footing before God. Without Christ, we are all equally condemned. Without Jesus, we all face the exact same fate. A sinner is a sinner no matter how much money he or she has. Our sin is a great equalizer in that sense, and no amount of wealth can change that. And that humbling truth is still the case even if we do have faith. The beauty of the gospel is that we are saved by sheer grace, not by anything we have done or just simply have in our possession. Our salvation is a gift to us, We can do nothing to earn it. So even as believers, our boast and our humiliation is in the fact that our union with Christ is totally unwarranted by us. It's not like a raffle where, like, if you ever, like, enter into a raffle, a lot of the time you can buy a whole bunch of tickets. So those who have more tickets stand a better chance of getting selected than those who have fewer It's not like that. In the case of the gospel, in the case of our standing before God, we are all equally as unlikely and undeserving of God's grace and mercy. But He does offer it, and He offers it simply because He chooses to love us and care for us. It's not because of what we have or don't have, it's because of His grace, it's because of His love. And that equalizes, that is our humiliation. Humiliation, we hear that word and we think in such negative terms about it. But what we want to understand in our humiliation is we should be humbled to recognize that our salvation has nothing to do with us. That is true for all of us. And therefore, if that is the case, if our standing before God is not merited or dependent upon our social or economic standing, then we don't need to hope or rest in those things. That is a beautiful reality for us all to remember, but it's especially helpful for those who are, in a sense, higher up in the world. It frees us, it frees them from the temptation to grow arrogant or proud. It provides a a way to battle that temptation It also frees us from the feeling, the pressure to maintain what we already have. I know many people who feel pressure to maintain a certain lifestyle once they've kind of risen up the socioeconomic ladder. Um, And because of that pressure, they're even sometimes willing to go into debt to maintain that lifestyle if they start to do worse financially. But we don't have to do that, though. In fact, we shouldn't do that. Because we are saved by grace, then we are no longer enslaved to the expectations of the world. We are freed up to devote ourselves to what's truly good and lasting. The rich who boast in their humiliation, who recognize that they are no better off than anyone else, but they still have the grace of God, want to leave a legacy of faithfulness and godliness, not simply money. They rejoice in what the Lord has given them during their times of plenty, but they are able to remain content and joyful even if their circumstances take a turn for the worse. Plus, they want to use the resources that they have for the good of others and for the spread of gospel ministry. They utilize what they have to demonstrate generosity and hospitality to those around them. They can adorn the gospel in some of the most brilliant, amazingly powerful ways. And I've seen this in our own church. But it's because of their humility amidst amidst their wealth, not simply because of their wealth. And that is the fruit of boasting in one's humiliation. Like I said, it is a beautiful, precious thing. So brothers and sisters who have much... Boast in your humiliation. Set your mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the remarkable grace that you have been given through no effort or merit of your own. Let that free you from trusting in what you have and allow you to rest in Christ alone. Let it fill you with a desire to serve and love with the blessings that God has given you. And everyone, friends, James provides us great hope to both the rich and the poor. Beyond his specific directions to each group, though, we have this one unifying message um, in our text today. As I said at the beginning, our only hope and boast, no matter what our earthly circumstances are, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let that be your encouragement and challenge this morning. Set your eyes upon him and him alone as your joy and salvation. And let that transform the way that you view money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just ask for that now. Father, by your Spirit, help us to set our minds upon heavenly things, not our earthly circumstances. Help those who have little, help them boast in their exaltation in all that the Lord has given them, all that we have in Jesus Christ. And for those who have much, Lord, help them to boast in their humiliation. Help them to recognize that all that they have is by your grace. Um, And help that free them from so many expectations and temptations that they might deal with. Father, we praise you so much for what we have in Christ. We praise him this morning for his unbelievable gospel. Amen.